At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 560th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on the podcast, we have someone who works on a set of time-tested and trusted planting resources from the Old Farmer's Almanac. We're talking with Ben Kilbride about the 2020 Garden Guide and more. Benjamin is an editorial assistant with the Old Farmer's Almanac. While he doesn't own any land, he gets creative gardening every year in pots, in small mobile greenhouses, and under lights in his pantry. Welcome to the show today, Ben. Are you ready to rock? Absolutely. Glad to be here. Excellent. Thanks for being here. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. So I wasn't always working here. The path to getting here was a little convoluted. So about four years ago, me and my partner decided to sell everything, move out of our apartment into a, a small Subaru. And we traveled across the country and worked on organic farms through a program called WOOF, uh-huh. Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. Right. And we're planning on working on a bunch of farms, but we ended up staying for most of the summer at this one in Western Montana. And it was just, it, it was a goat farm. And we just completely fell in love with it. And the woman that runs it, basically, she taught us, got us really excited about everything that has to do with farming, uh, running a goat farm, and how to build a greenhouse, living off the land, and living off the grid as well. You know, after that experience, um, which lasted about three months in the summer, eventually we uh, came back to New England, and I was completely inspired by by everything that we had learned from that. And I started to write about that experience. And then, I, you know, and then I needed some money. So right. I reached out to somebody in the, place, in the area I grew up in, which is southwestern New Hampshire. And that person is my old high school uh, English teacher. And he actually works and has worked at the Old Farmers Almanac for, for many years. Wow. And, you know, I, I was just talking with him, you know, just to catch up with him. I actually had no intention of asking him anything. I was just like, you know, Hey, how's it going? It's been years. And, and he was like, you know, I think I might have something that, that might work out for you and could work out for us too. So he talked to um, people at the old farmers almanac and they set me up with an interview. I went through rigorous tests (laughs) of knowledge and writing and eventually got hired, which was a, a really amazing opportunity. And I've continued to learn at the Old Farmer's Almanac uh, and continue to bolster my knowledge about growing vegetables, about farming. And it's it's just been a really great fit. Wow. And did you have any gardening 
before you went woofing that summer, did you have any gardening knowledge? Had you gardened before or was this a new process for you? So my family has a few gardens in the backyard. And so when I was a kid, I, I had, you know, planted some carrots and weeded. So that's basically my experience mm-hmm. before I went farming. <laughs> so I would say I had, I had very little experience. But you jumped in full heart, full all the way anyways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Nice. I mean, that's the only way to garden. <laughs> so you work for the Old Farmer's Almanac, and I'm on their website, your website. It's almanac.com, and it says founded in 1792. And I asked you before we started recording, I said, who owns the Almanac? What did you tell me? I said it's an employee-owned company, so everyone who works here owns it. Wow, and tell me a little bit about the history of it. Sure, absolutely. So it's, I mean, you know, being something that uh, started about 229 years ago, you imagine it's probably gone through a lot of changes. Right. Uh, so it started out. It started out being founded by a farmer in Massachusetts named Robert B. Thomas, and he. The reason that the almanac ended up becoming popular was because he had this knack for predicting weather, and that's like that's the the heart and soul of the almanac is predicting weather because that's really important to growing crops. Mm-hmm. If you don't know when it's going to, you know, have a, a flood or when the frosts are coming around, then you're probably going to lose a lot of what you're growing. So he predicted weather correctly and accurately and uh, continued to make it popular throughout the course of his life. And then it continued to pass on through, I think we're up to the 13th editor at this point who's been running it. And to give you a little bit of an idea about what was happening in 1792 when this started, uh, the president was a farmer named George Washington. So, you know, we've been around for a while. Wow. You had said there are there have been 13 editors of the publication? Yes. So I mean by the head editors, the ones that man the ship, manage everybody else. 13 in 229 years. Correct. They stay around so for they, a So they stick around time. for a while. Who's the current yeah, editor? Yeah, they do. Uh, that would be Janice Stillman. She's been editor, I think, since 2000. <laughs> wow. What a great piece of history. So I, I actually have in front of me the Old Farmer's Almanac Garden Guide for 2020 and the Old Farmer's Almanac Vegetable Gardener's Handbook. Tell me about these publications. Yeah, absolutely. So we adapt with the times as they go because, you know, you're not, you can't just stay with the same thing forever. Of course, we definitely stick to the tried and true. You can always get the Old Farmer's Almanac. The original uh, looks pretty much the same as when it first came out. But we've come out with these other uh, shoot-off publications to continue helping people to garden, specifically gardening, um, because not everybody's a farmer. (laughs) And the Garden Guide does a great job doing that, uh, giving advice and information on current gardening trends and uh, unique ideas and ways to, you know, have a great harvest and play with different kinds of plants that you might not think of originally. Mm -hmm. So kind of got a little bit of everything and we we try and keep on top of what people like to be growing every year, but it changes. It changes every year. Oh, nice. And the almanac itself is known for predicting things since the very beginning. How does mm-hmm. how does your organization going go about giving us a, a weather outlook for 2020 for the fall for the winter? What resources do you use to make that happen? So originally the how our formula was kind of like you know the the secret ingredient something that we didn't talk about but you know as time goes on we've changed that and we I can tell you exactly how we do it. So we 
do a bit of everything. Um, the main point, which is something that uh, Robert B. Thomas, this is what he was good at, was using sunspots, which are storms on the sun, magnetic sunstorms mm-hmm. that uh, can have an effect on the weather across the planet. So there are more sunspots at a given time, then that usually means an increase in influence on the weather on the planet. And then when there are fewer, it has less influence. Um, so he would he, he figured that out and that it works pretty well. And then, of course, nowadays, we also use state-of-the-art technology, you know, satellites and prediction software. And then as well as looking at, you know, much, much smaller, looking at the uh, climatology uh, study of the prevailing weather patterns in smaller areas. So, you know, you know how you can get like pocket frosts in certain areas. Oh, yes, right. But on the other side of a mountain, there will be sun and they'll be completely fine. So that that kind of stuff is really important and can be tracked and the data can be used because we have so many weather instruments taking data in all the time. And that's extremely useful for gardeners and for, for farmers. So that's kind of, you know, an overview about how we how we predict weather. Mm-hmm. A lot goes into it. Wow. And of course, I should say, we have 229 years worth of predictions. <laughs> right. And a great way to look for, you know, what's going to happen is to look into the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps us see what's going to happen. And with 229 years worth of predictions, I'm sure once the year passed, you look back to see how good you did? Absolutely. And how, yeah, how, we is, do that. Your, how is your completion record? So we are historically 80% accurate. And we've held to that every year we put in a report on how well we did in the previous year. So you can look at it and see just how well we did. So we, we um, take a little bit of the precipitation percentage and the temperature accuracy. And we combine that together and we get our overall accuracy. So this past year, uh, we were about 80.5% accurate. So slightly wow. above the historical average. That's pretty um, cool. Yeah, and it's pretty impressive because we're making predictions about a year and a half in advance. And, you know, that's like, that's pretty far to be predicting. Oh, yeah, especially for the weather. I mean, they they have a hard time predicting it out 10 days in the local news. Maybe they need to get together with you, huh? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So the Old Farmer's Almanac is an almanac, but then you have these other publications that we mentioned earlier, the uh, Garden Guide and the Vegetable Gardener's Handbook. Tell us about those and how you're involved with them and who they're for. So the way that these other publications work are is there's too much information about gardening and farming that we can't fit it all in the traditional publications. So they, in the Garden Guide, we have an article about how to grow hydroponically inside. And it's an easy DIY kind of operation. And this is something that's too long. We couldn't fit it in the normal publication. So for like less than $100, uh, you can actually just grow greens like lettuce and spinach and kale um, right out of a bucket. And this is actually something that I tested out right in the office, right next to my desk for about a year. And eventually I got my own system at home because it worked so well, shockingly. <laughs> and what's nice about this is, you know, with hydroponics, usually you need some kind of uh, water filtration or movement like pump this is a really simple like bare bones version where it's just you put water and nutrients in a bin you take a lid and you cut holes out on the top and you put little plastic net pots in it with perlite a growing medium Mm -hmm. and then you just put seeds in and put some grow lights above it as close as you can get them and they just take off so 
So right now in my pantry, as uh, you mentioned in my uh, at the beginning of this interview, I grow in the pantry, and that's through this hydroponic system. And we have huge heads of kale and uh, lettuce growing right now. Oh, nice. What yeah, kind of so what kind of nutrients do you use in it? So we use more of a grow focused. So for the it's nitrogen heavy mm-hmm. um, to help all of the leaf growth, and it's pretty simple. You can mix your own, but you can also get ones at your local you know, grow houses and hydroponics um, yeah. department stores. Yeah. Hydroponics. And yeah, you just want to get a hydroponic nutrient mix. And there are other ones that are based more on different kinds of growth uh, points in the plant's life cycle. So if you're going to grow something like tomatoes, you would need a completely different set of grow formulas for that. Yeah. And yeah, nutrients and different lights. So with just the, the vegetation growth, you can get away with just the blue spectrum, which is like, you know, your basic lights, uh, LED lights and shop lights. Mm-hmm. But if you want flower and fruit growth, fruit being meaning the vegetable growth, then you're going to need uh, the red spectrum as well. Um, oh, interesting. I did not know that. And so the, you, you mentioned high in nitrogen. So the, the nutrients that are high in nitrogen are going to grow leafy things. And so if you wanted to grow tomatoes, you probably need more of the PK in the NPK, right? Yeah. Though I have to say, I am not an expert on these things. Nor am I. Um, And that's, yeah. And that's why um, we have these resources and we have this whole, you know, group of people and that can tell you about all of this. I'm just one little piece in the puzzle. (laughs) When, you know, that's, that's, yeah, that's what we do. You know, you, you and I are kind of in the same business we're basically interviewing really cool people, digging yeah. for some information and sharing it. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. You know, one of my favorite days of the week is the day that I get to sit down in front of my computer and talk with people like you about different stories because we're well over 550 episodes of the Urban Farm Podcast. and That is impressive. Well, thank you. And I have gotten to interview, you know, people from backyard tinkerers to literally rock stars and and share their stories so yeah i love it yeah it's it's pretty great and actually that's funny that you say it that way because uh the hydroponic system that i just talked about this was developed by a teacher tom michaels who works at the university of minnesota and this is just something that he had been like working on himself like in his backyard Uh for years and kind of like slowly worked it out and then had a blog about it and then we found him and we were like this is an amazing thing everybody should know about this um and worked with him to to make it digestible for everybody um yeah, and that, that is, I love working with people like that. Linda, have you noticed in this whole COVID year that there's a whole lot more interest in growing food? Hugely, huge, huge uh, amount of interest right now. I have noticed that even just driving down the street, mm-hmm. I've seen raised beds being placed in front right? yards, like all over the place. And, you know, the seeds are going out of stock left and right. And I think it's great. I think it's exactly what needs to be happening right now. I think being able to grow your own food or even just understanding how your food is grown mm-hmm. is immensely important in this day and age. Huge. The closer we get to that is, I think, will help everyone in the future because um, it gives you a greater appreciation for it as well as just, you know, if you can grow your own basil or tomatoes and, you know, make a sauce with it, it's, it does a lot for yourself at the end of the day. You just 
look at that. I made a whole meal myself. I grew the whole thing. Right. I think uh, it makes me feel really good. <laughs> you know, there have been multiple times. So I've been here at the Urban Farm for 31 years. I've, and we're right in Phoenix. And the, for those of you that don't know, the Urban Farm is my house. I've been here 31 years. And it's on a property right in the middle of Phoenix that is 80 feet wide and 160 feet deep. And there have been multiple times, probably hundreds of times over the past 31 years where I have grown entire meals out of the yard with the exception of the butter that I use to cook it with. So, and, and you're right. It is one of the most extraordinary things we can do and empowering too. That is very impressive. And I think if, if everybody can learn a little bit about how to do that, I think we'll be better off for it. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. That is the case. The gardening guides that you put out, um, what is one of your favorite stories in it? We have one about how to plant your own native garden. Uh-huh. And I think that is also really important, understanding what is native in your environment, um, learning about what plants grow here naturally. Because a lot of the things that we plant you know, in the garden, they need so much help. They need so much you know, babying along to get through their entire growth cycle. But mm-hmm. there are some plants like you know, chives, pretty much impossible to kill. <laughs> right. um, mint, mint, many different kinds of mint plants, which will, you know, you pinch them off and they grow stronger. Oh, yes. And they're, they're perennial. So, you know, it's, I think it's great if you can learn what your native plants are in your region, your native perennial plants, then you can actually grow kind of like a whole section of your garden that you barely have to do any maintenance to. You actually have to kind of like keep it at bay a little bit because mm-hmm. they'll often like start growing a little out of hand. Um, so we have an article about which ones are great for different areas and why that's important to do. And it also depends on like, you know, if you're looking for shrubs and small trees, like blueberry bushes can be a great plant to have in your in your garden. Once they get going, once they're established, they need very little maintenance overall, except for maybe uh, a little protection from the birds <laughs> right. when uh, the blueberries come around. But yeah. usually, you know, you you're on top of getting those. Blueberries are very specific to your area, maybe, and Mm -hmm. not very specific to the low desert. Blueberries are a high, highly experimental plant here in the low desert. (laughs) Yeah. So that is very true. And we do have information on for these guides for different areas of the country. We're not just centered on the New England area. Um, That's not useful for very many people. But the uh, Vegetable Gardener's Handbook, the other book that you mentioned, is one of our newer products. And it's really, it's, it's great for you know, both the beginner and the expert. And it's got everything you need to know for you know, how to start your garden, like where to, where to put your plot, to knowing your microclimates, you know, if you're in a little cold pocket or if you're on the side of a hill, or you know, what, what that means for your garden. You know, all the way to how to build your, how to build a raised bed. Less digging, more mulch. Yeah, exactly. And even like soil tests, um, which are very important and definitely not done enough. I have to admit myself that I don't test my soil very often. And it can make a huge difference for your your overall uh, growing season if you t- get your soil tested and then know what to put in it for the plants that you're going to be growing. Because, you know, most plants can grow fine with just whatever soil you, you can find. Just put in some compost every year to help refresh the nutrients. But if you really know like what you need to put in there, you're going to have a really bountiful harvest. Excellent. So this, this current book we're talking about is Vegetable Gardener's Handbook from the Old Farmer's Almanac. 
It starts out with part yes. one for ground rules and journal pages are soil tests, composting, favorite vegetables. And then it goes into the second half of the book with vegetables and growing concerns. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've got everything from asparagus to turnips and those growing guides are really helpful because it'll, we tell you exactly, you know, what to do when you're planting. So when to plant it, um, how deep to plant it, what soil temperatures and air temperatures you need, what kind of fertilizer they need, what kind of care. And also we have a huge section in the back for diseases and pests, mm, which are right. often one of the top concerns for gardeners, the battle of the pests. And that's actually most of the questions we get on almanac.com or website have to do with, especially around this time of year, have to do with people, you know, wondering how to deal with like squash vine borers or, you know, powdery mildew and I really like helping and answering those kinds of questions because often there's a simple solution. Sometimes there isn't, but but often there is, and it can be really exciting for somebody to learn how to grow that plant, Big whatever time. plant they're, they're growing all the way through, uh, yeah. and then be able to eat it. And it can be a little disappointing when, when it gets eaten by, say, a chipmunk. <laughs> right. Yeah, before you get to eat it. So, well, and the other thing is, is that I'll often get emails and calls from people and they'll say, I have mushrooms in my yard. How do I kill it? Or there's a bug eating my plants. How do I kill it? And bef mm -hmm. my experience is with the mushrooms, we want them. So if you got mushrooms, you're doing mm -hmm. good. And secondly, yep. if you have something eating your plants, you need to figure out what's eating them first before we know how to treat for it, right? Yes, exactly. And that's what our pest pages are for, especially in the in the vegetable gardener's handbook. Um, so it'll the, describe what the bugs or the whatever the pest is, what it looks like, and what kind of signs uh, that you should look for on the type of plant that you're looking at. Because it could be a number of things. Some plants, some vegetables have far more pests than others. And actually a really good way to avoid a lot of pests is to rotate your crops every year. And rotating crops is basically just don't plant the same vegetables of the same family in the same bed more than like two years in a row, because a lot of pests will actually they'll lay eggs in the soil. And then oh, um, right. over the winter, they'll come back up the next year in their, their larva state and start eating your plants. But if you were to rotate your crops, then a plant will be there that 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 pest won't actually want to eat mm -hmm. and you won't have an issue. Excellent. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited that we finally got the Old Farmer's Almanac on board here at the Urban Farm Podcast. Thanks for sharing what you've shared. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here as well. This has been great. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what it you what you learned from it. Okay. So after I went traveling across the country to work on farms, I tried to. I was I was living in a place that allowed me to uh, do a little bit of gardening, and I tried to I tried to do too much. You know, we had a couple raised beds, and then I I was digging up the backyard, and all by hand, I didn't have any tractors or tools or anything. So I was basically just shoveling sod out of a, <laughs> out of the lawn. I wanted to like, I wanted to make a farm basically in our backyard and it was too much. I didn't have enough soil to replace that. I had no compost. I planted, you know, 
hundreds of seeds of different kinds of vegetables, and I'd say more than half of them didn't didn't get through the whole growth cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the soil was too compacted. I tried growing sweet potatoes, which are very hard to grow in my region. We, we're in uh, region five here, and they like much warmer temperatures, yes. so they need really specific you know, things. And I started growing in June, which was way too late. So they ended up being the size of like fingers, you know, they were, they were tiny and it was, it was pretty disheartening, but at the same time, I learned a lot from it. And the biggest thing I learned is to, when you're starting out, don't go big. (laughs) If you focus on a small plot, a raised bed or a couple raised beds, you'll have a much more successful time growing uh, all the way through and actually have a harvest. And that can be you know, you can build off of that the next year, grow a little bit bigger or try a different vegetable, but go small and focus on that. Uh, that's what I learned. And I've had much more success in the, the past years. Yay. I've been telling people that for years, pick one thing and get good at it. Cause otherwise what happens yep. is you get overwhelmed. And often when we get overwhelmed, what happens? Yeah. You forget your plants and then they get weeds coming up everywhere. Right. You stop. <laughs> exactly. So what do you consider your biggest success? I'd say my biggest success is after that failure is learning how to grow on a smaller section and actually mainly with that hydroponic system, which lets lets me grow in the winter, which I'm always disappointed. You know, it's it's always really hard to close up shop with uh, the gardening season. You know, you really start to miss greenery in the middle of winter in January. Mm-hmm. So being able to go in my pantry and, you know, have these bouquets of kale leaves uh really you know bright green leaves uh growing right there it's mentally really great so i'd say that's my biggest success is being able to grow year-round inside wow can we get a picture of your pantry garden absolutely yeah got lots of them cool and what drives you would be wanting to learn and understand how to live off of the land and grow food sustainably that was the main thing that the, that I learned from farming off grid was that you can grow, uh, you can live off the grid and grow all the food you need to survive, but you have to have the right knowledge to do it. So what drives me is to continue to learn the skills to do that. And one day I hope to, you know, be able to have a homestead myself. Nice. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So Working at the Old Farmer's Almanac, I'm going to have to say the Old Farmer's Almanac for Kids, um, which is another book that we have completely designed for kids, uh, full of really fun articles, some on gardening and projects and, you know, little fun facts and things that, you know, I actually really enjoy the book myself. And I'm not a kid, but, you know, it can be for anyone. And yeah. That's the book I'd recommend. <laughs> Excellent. Well, and we're all a little bit kid inside, so. Absolutely. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? No matter how much space you have, you know, whether you have a whole backyard or just a windowsill, that you should not know that you can still grow vegetables and grow food for yourself. And just because, you know, you only have 10 minutes in the morning and then that windowsill, you know, you can still have big pot of basil or um, some mint growing and you should never let that limit you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. How can our listeners find you and get a hold of you? 
Uh, you're going to go to almanac.com and you can find links to all of the things that we've talked about today from there, as well as uh, tons of different grow guides, information, and everything that's free um, that you can uh, learn about gardening uh, straight from our website. Excellent. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash farmers almanac. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.